Welcome to Heart of the Father Ministries and the preaching and teaching ministry of Dr. David Nichols. Our prayer for you is that this message will pierce your heart and raise you into your place of destiny in Jesus Christ. Jesus is our example of how healing and miracles are to be done. Second one, Christians should be taught to expect healings and miracles as part of the gospel of the kingdom. Number three, healings and miracles have never ceased in the history of the church. And number four, it is right to expect that present healings and miracles will lead people to repentance. Hallelujah. Amen? Amen. I was just in Africa about a month ago. And uh, Pastor Lloyd Olds was with me there, waved Pastor Lloyd so they can see you. We were at, had another guy with us, our staff guy, Pete, and we saw exactly that happening there in our meetings in Africa. Healings and miracles led people to repentance because this God that we were preaching had power and authority over all the power and authority of the enemy. Can you say amen to that? Hallelujah. And that is, uh, that is why we do this. We believe it's true and real, and we're just going to go for it. All right, so the place of healing in the apostolic reformation. Let's get the, uh, there's the PowerPoint. We've got it. All right, there is a place for healing in the apostolic reformation. So next slide, please. We're going to start out with two scriptures here today. Everyone scream right out loud, teach us from the word, doctor. Teach us from the word. That's not screaming. Bring it out and talk about it every once in a while so it doesn't slip away, amen? But it's a solid foundation under our feet. Well, with Wesley, by, by the time of Wesley's ministry, uh, as he got lit up with the Holy Spirit, he began going around preaching in churches. And... He writes about this in his journal, and he, he would say, I, I was in such a church in such a town, and uh, I preached my message, and the fire fell, and uh, the, uh, the elders and deacons took me to the door and asked me to leave and not come back. <laughs> and those were the nicer people. Some of them ran them out of town on a rail. Some of them attempted to tar and feather them. Uh, he, the, the ministry of the fire was not well received by the Pharisees of that age. And I'll tell you, the Pharisees are always going to be with us. I know that because I was one, okay? Um, I didn't show you here. I have a book out there on our table to prove it, uh, the Pharisee syndrome. It starts with my own testimony. Too long to go into here today. But Wesley ran into them. So Wesley said, and I'm sure he was led by the Holy Spirit to do this, said, the message cannot be received in the church. So therefore, I'm going to go and preach out in fields. <laughs> and people said, you can't do that. Because today, I mean, we say, well, sure, go, you know, like, Crusades in Africa and sometimes even here in America, in Minnesota in the summertime, not the winter. You know? <laughs> no, but, 
You can't go out and preach in a field. You're crazy. Wesley said, watch me. And he started preaching in the fields. And the people first started coming by the hundreds. And then by the thousands. And then by the tens of thousands showing up these open-air field meetings that the Pharisees could not understand. But what was happening is the love of God and the power of God was being manifested afresh and anew, leading people to the thing that everybody needs, repentance. And then the, the living of the Christian life with the mercy and love of the Father. That to me, is one of Wesley's greatest contributions and, and function in the actual Reformation that, that he caused. That we don't even give it a second thought. I was just in Africa doing it a month ago. It's wonderful. You don't have to worry uh, usually about the size of the venue. Well, we have a couple times when, when a field was overflowed by people and we couldn't fit any more people on the field. But usually, you don't have to worry about that. And in those days, miracles were happening that we don't even conceive of today because we have microphones, we have speakers, we have electric power and all that. They didn't have any of that. Do you know that when Wesley had 35 and 40,000 people on the field, every single ear heard exactly what he was saying. It was a supernatural miracle of amplification of his voice. It's amazing. And they came by the thousands to repent. Hey, Craig, welcome. <laughs> no problem. <clears throat> All right, so with those two reformations in mind, let's talk about the apostolic reformation. We're warming up here to talk about healing in apostolic reformation. So I would summarize it as you have it up there. Here's what the Apostolic Reformation is. We're, we're living in it right now. We're, we're in it. We've been in it for some years, and, and we're still in it now. Revival of the 90s that happened in, in uh, well, all over the world, but notably here in America and in Canada, have led to a reformation that has brought this about. The fivefold ministry finally realizes that we are to equip the saints, the whole church. This is Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. We realize we are to equip the saints, the whole church, to believe and practice the supernatural gospel of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I think if, if you wanted to sum it up in one statement, I think that would be a good place to start. And isn't it amazing that here you are in Maplewood, Minnesota, and you saw that happen this morning with Apostle Jim Ricard in the morning session. That's exactly what he did, right in front of your eyes here. I was really, I was thinking what I was going to say now. I'm like, wow, he just acted out what I'm going to say with a PowerPoint and with words. And that dear lady was giving words and knowledge and stuff was happening. Amen. That, that's what's supposed to happen. But to make that change, 
You see, we lost this part of the gospel so early and so far back, I would say already by the second century. People called bishops, and praise God for bishops. I love bishops. They're wonderful. I love working with them. But back in the second century, the authority and the power of the church was transferred from the apostles and prophets, pretty much, practically speaking, over to the bishops. And then you give that about two or three more centuries, and the bishops get together and say, ah, this isn't enough. We need a bishop of bishops. And he becomes the pope. And for a thousand years, you almost, you, you have a pope, and you have what we just talked about a minute ago, a need for reformation, which Martin Luther answered that call. Interesting, isn't it? So really, the apostolic reformation is reaching back. Teach us from the word, doctor. Teach us from the word. There, that's screaming. All right, good. Very good. Hebrews chapter 13. Hallelujah. Every crusade we do in Africa, we have this verse in large letters about this high above the background of the platform. So it is really, it is over everything that we do. So here it is, Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's all say that together. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hallelujah. Truth. You can bank on that. You can depend on that. That's not going to change. Now, with that in mind, over in Acts chapter 3, this is a scripture that really teaches us from the very early days of the church what to expect in the whole area of both revival and reformation. And it's truly the revealing power of the Holy Spirit that speaks through the mouth of Peter, the Apostle Peter here in this passage, to actually sweep across this whole present age, the age that started with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and then up to the second coming of Jesus, and then beyond, what, what to expect then? So let's read beginning in verse 19. Peter says, Repent, therefore, and be converted. That is the message for this present age. Can anybody say amen to that? That is the message that every man, woman, and child in this world has got to hear, that there is a repentance and a forsaking of sin and leaving it behind because of the victory that Jesus won. Hallelujah. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Peter was 
anticipating already shortly after the day of Pentecost that Christian believers would need refreshing is the term he uses here. We would call it revival. Life again where life once was. And he's declaring that here in this message. And then he says in verse 20, and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So in other words, Jesus came in the first coming. He's poured out the Holy Spirit. Now we are in times of refreshing. Isn't that a beautiful way to refer to this present age? Because, you know, I mean, let's face it, there's, there's a lot of negative stuff you could talk about. There's wars and rumors of wars. There's sins and debauchery. There's all this terrible stuff going on. And Peter gets up and he says, ah, this whole present age, it's times of refreshing. Hallelujah. Times of revival. When the church declines and goes down and you, we're not seeing what we saw before, we cry out to God. Hallelujah. He sends refreshing and he sends renewal and revival. But when he says, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began, he is telling us that God's plan for the human race is so big it's so amazing that it entails both ages, this age that we're living in now and the age to come. And that what divides these two ages is the bodily, personal second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he splits heaven open, hallelujah, comes riding on the white horse. You can read about that in Revelation 19. And he comes in victory, in power, and he overcomes everything that Satan has thrown up in this world. Hallelujah. Do you love him today? Do you love his appearing? Hallelujah. He's coming for those who love his appearing, the word of God says. Hallelujah. And if you love it, he's coming for you. Praise God. But in this present age now, from between the first coming and the second coming, what we have is times of refreshing, and I've already used the word revival, and there are times when the departure from God's truth is so severe that just a revival by itself is not going to bring us back. So then what we need is revival leading to reformation. Now, a call for reformation, please understand, is not something to be done flippantly. There aren't a lot of reformations in the history of the church. But let's talk, before we talk about healing and uh, the apostolic reformation, let's talk about reformation in general. So here's what it is, our first line, our first sentence here. Reformation is a fundamental change in belief and practice which calls the church back to its original foundations. In other words, the church 
has veered so far in its practice and its teaching that it has to be challenged at the very core of its existence and probably farther even than Wesley's and farther back than Luther's, but we're standing on their shoulders. And here we are with the, the saints. It's already started, but the saints are being equipped to do the work of the ministry. And it's not rocket science. And it doesn't require a master of divinity. <laughs> I mean, master of divinity is a great degree to have. Praise God for it. There's, there's good things that go with it. But you don't need one to do this. Everyone scream right out loud. Tell us a story, doctor. Tell us a story, doctor. All right, here we go. This happened, of all places in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Okay? So I'm up there doing a, a three-day meeting in this church, wonderful church. It really loves God, wants to see the kingdom come. And I pour into the people on Friday night and impart to them and all this stuff and say, okay, now you all have an assignment. Your assignment is to find one person between now and tomorrow night, because the next meeting was Saturday night, and you are to pour the love of Jesus into them and see what happens. Maybe they'll get healed. Maybe they'll get saved. Maybe they'll be encouraged in their Christian walk. Who knows? You know, it's just this is what you are to do. And uh, so we left, and we came back on Saturday night, and I got up there. I said, okay, who's got their homework done? And I'm telling you, it was a line of people. It was awesome. And the testimonies were, were like I just said, everything from the person got healed, to their per one, one person, theirs was already a believer. And, and can I tell you something of having done this for years? When I first started doing this years ago, I thought, all right, here I go, a hero of faith, right out into Maplewood, <laughs> right out into St. Paul, or where I live, Rush City, Minnesota, the metropolis. You know? <laughs> and, you know, and, and to encounter the powers of hell and overcome them and bring the lost to Jesus, and I, I had this image in my mind, you know. And when I actually got out there and started doing it, can I tell you, having done this for years now, at least half of the people that I run into out there are already believers. It's to the point where I really don't believe the polls anymore. <laughs> America is a post-Christian nation. It's sliding down. It's all that. I don't believe that anymore. Let's begin to confess the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that this nation was raised up and it's begun. I just quoted Benjamin Franklin to you. Okay, I mean, we could use a lot of other guys. All right that God raised up this nation to indeed be a light in the wilderness of the world, to bring this gospel to the world, and, and as it is right now, since we're the wealthiest nation in the world, how about we finance it out to the whole world? Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So anyway, we were in this uh, meeting, and 
Saturday night, all those wonderful testimonies. And, and I remember this one lady. Uh, she ran into a, a high school friend of hers that she hadn't seen since high school, which for her would have been probably 25, 30 years. And she actually brought him to the meeting. And he came all the way back. He was a kind of a backslidden believer. And he came all the way back to the Lord. And we're like, oh, hallelujah. But this lady did not stop with just that assignment. I'm talking about the apostolic reformation, which believes that the saints can do the work of the ministry. This, this is, we've got to get this settled in our, in our interior working. Hallelujah. So Sunday morning comes, and I'm walking down the center aisle of the church with the pastor to start the service. And this lady stops me halfway down. She says, oh, Brother Nichols. She says, I've got another one. Can I tell it this morning? I go, okay, I'll, I'll call you up. So, so here's what she says. She says, last night I went home, and I was hungry. Now, I want you to get this because this Reformation, look, Luther's Reformation was very much about challenging Pharisees and calling down uh, theologies and, and creating new ones and praise God for that. Man, I'm very trained in that. I, I would easily be distracted by that, Craig. I'm drawn off, you know. But this Reformation that we're in now is right down walking on the street. That's what I love about it. It's there every day. It's it's right in front of you. You don't you don't have to go to Saxony and, and hang out with Luther. You don't have to go to London and watch Wesley preach on the fields. You can just step out of your house and walk down the street and it's right there. Amen. So she said uh, I I was hungry, so I called for a pizza. Now, that's an everyday, normal, American kind of activity, right? <laughs> Calling for a pizza. Expect, this believer had been equipped for the work of the ministry, and she expected the inbreaking of the supernatural into the natural, right? So she, she gets the pizza manager on the phone. She gives her order, and the, and the guy says... Will there be anything else, ma'am? <laughs> now, how many times has someone said that to you? Will there be anything else? She said, yes, sir, there's one more thing. He said, well, what is it? She said, I have to pray for somebody real soon. <laughs> and he said, I don't know what to do with that, but I'll tell your driver. <laughs> 30 minutes later, uh, shocked in a manner of speaking to be sent back to the to the original foundations. Now, Jesus Himself does not change. We just read that in Hebrews chapter thirteen, right? We're not talking about Jesus changing. He's always the same. The Word of God says so. So Jesus does not need reformation, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> the Reformation of Jesus was attempted by very many liberal theologians in the 19th and 20th centuries. They said, well, we're going to take Jesus and we're going to reform him and shape him so the modern man can understand. 
The most famous of these uh, is probably Rudolf Boltmann. Everybody heard of Rudolf Boltmann? Quite a few people have, okay? There's a little jingle that goes with Boltmann for Christmas time, okay? Hark the herald angels sing. Boltmann is the latest thing. Or they would, had he not, demythologized the lot. <clears throat> In other words, he explained them out of existence. And uh, Boltmann's big deal and many other people with him was this Jesus of the Gospels is just too supernatural, man. He, he is, uh, that, that's a part of a mythical ancient worldview that had demons in it, and it had supernatural cures of diseases and miracles and all. We people in the 19th and 20th century, we're smart. We know there's no such things as all of that. So if people are going to understand Jesus, we're going to have to reform Jesus for them. <laughs> Seriously, I'm telling you. And it's called form criticism, redaction criticism. There's a lot of, a lot of different ways they went after this. And the whole thing was, was a, a wrong idea to start with because Jesus doesn't change. And the way he's revealed in this book, especially in these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is the real Jesus. Can you say amen to that? And when it says he healed people, it means uh, he healed people. And when he did miracles, he did miracles. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so let, let's start by laying that as our foundation. And so to understand why we need Reformation, then we have our, our third statement here. The cultures and societies of mankind are constantly changing so that the church functioning within these must be reformed. Because what happens is the changing issues that are going on through the passing of history, the church is not... Uh, exempt from those. The church is functioning in a world filled with all these things, and there are times when the church has digressed to the point where it had to be shaken at its very core in order to even survive as God's church on earth. Okay, so let's uh, go to our next slide here. Oh, Benjamin Franklin. Hey, don't you love Benjamin Franklin? What a guy. I mean, discovered electricity, uh, founding father, helped write the Constitution and all that stuff. <laughs> but here is what Benjamin Franklin said about all of this. This is an amazing statement. He who shall introduce into public affairs the principles of primitive Christianity shall change the face of the world. And of course, uh, liberal scholars attacked this. Franklin didn't really say it. They just discovered uh, a document from 1790 that comes out of France where Franklin was our ambassador. He was the ambassador of the U.S. to the nation of France that proves he said this and meant it. Well, if this is what Franklin really believed, at least from his perspective, uh, so much for separation of church and state in the United States, eh? But that's another subject for another day. What we want to... <laughs> everyone scream right out loud, let's milk this statement, doctor! <laughs> what, we, 
what we want to milk out of this statement is Franklin's call to a return to primitive Christianity. Primitive, meaning back at the origins, the original stuff the way it was. That is, people being delivered from demon spirits, people being healed in their sick bodies, people repenting of their sins and getting new life put into them supernaturally by the power and the mercy of God. That's primitive. And I think you're here today in this session because you have a primitive mindset. Seriously. So look at your neighbor right now and, and tell him this. Tell him, I'm a primitive. Go ahead, tell him. Everybody hold their finger up like this. Point it right at your neighbor and tell him, you're a primitive too. <laughs> All right, we got a bunch of primitive people here today. And if you're primitive, then you're going to come to understand the need for reformation. Seriously. All right, next slide. Let's look at three different reformations so that we can understand what we're talking about when we want to uh, unearth the, the relationship between healing and the apostolic reformation. So let's start with Martin Luther. That's probably the most famous reformation. It created what is called Protestant Christianity. It is usually said to have begun on October 31st, 1517, when Luther nailed the 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg. In Luther's view, what those were was a call to debate over what had happened in the church, how far the church had drifted away, and that which is in part will be done away. And based on that passage, millions of Christians around the world in their formal cessation and say, okay, there's no more, and, and they say there's no more healing and miracles, even though the words healings and miracles are not in this passage at all. The three things that are mentioned there are tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. That at some point, those are going to cease. And of course, that's the question. Is it right after the first coming, or is it after the second coming, when we are actually not going to need them anymore? In this present age, we need them. Amen? But even if we granted the premise of the argument and said, all right, there is no basis here whatsoever for believing that healing and miracles ceased. I mean, at least salvage that part. You know, if you're gonna. And really, of course, I, I'm not advocating that. I'm, I'm kind of throwing the devil's advocate thing out here. It doesn't work logically or theologically or practically. This gospel is preached in the presence of signs and wonders and healings and prophecies and, and everything that Jesus gave us. So let's, let's cling to it. Amen? That's the first one. Second one, the will of God. The will of God in healing. Boy, there's a big subject, huh? Well, 
Let's look at a couple of scriptures. Maybe a reformation is needed. Psalm 103, verse 3. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals some of your diseases. No, that's not what it says. It says, who forgives all your iniquities and who heals all your diseases. It's God's will for every single person on this planet to be saved. Is that right? Is every single person on this planet saved? How about back up a generation or two gener, three generations where everybody is dead by now? How about that generation? Was everybody saved then? Probably not. God loves the human race so much. This love is so amazing that he has given us the freedom to choose. And actually, if he can have fellowship and relationship and, and intimacy with some of that human race, he's willing to let his very will almost, in a manner of speaking, be thwarted. And that's God's will we're talking. That's not the will of some dictator or some president or prime minister somewhere. This is God. There's never been a generation yet that everyone has been saved. So when it comes to healing, which I believe he, salvation of the soul and healing of the body need to be on parallel tracks with each other. Just me, I know I'm out of my mind, but... You know, what applies to salvation applies to healing. Do we understand that completely, that God wills everybody to be saved and not everybody saved? We can start. There's things we can say about it. Do we really understand that? Not really. So how about we just apply that same thing to healing he is willing that everybody be healed and not everybody gets healed. Now, practically speaking, so that's more the theological thing, but practically speaking, let's just go over to this other scripture here in the Gospel of Matthew and let Jesus speak for himself. If Jesus were here in, in bodily presence in this meeting and we had people come walking up here that they were sick and had diseases, what would Jesus say to them? Well, it's okay for you, not you. you know, two, two no, three yes, one, one no over here. I don't think he would do that. Because of what I read here in Matthew 8, 3. Let's read 2 in front of it. Behold, a leper came, worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, Leper, don't you know I'm Jesus? Where's your faith, boy? Is that what Jesus said? No. Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. 
be cleansed. Wow. Exactly what the leper needed to hear. If you are willing, you can make me clean. I expect, of course, I'm out of my mind. you got to constantly bear that in mind, okay? I expect that every member of the human race, that if they ask Jesus like this leper did, if you are willing, you can make me clean, I expect that Jesus would say that to them. That's what I believe. So I think we should just operate in practice and pray and believe and rebuke disease as though every person's going to be healed. There's some of this we're just going to have to leave to God, kind of like the millions that didn't get saved last generation. I, I don't know ultimately what to do with that, but God does. And so the last thing here, Tell your neighbor he's trying to close. Go ahead, tell, tell him. Okay. The clergyman. He was taught that the lost people of the world need to be reached, but in terms of the new birth and salvation, he hadn't been reached yet himself. Very interesting, isn't it? So he says, uh, I'll travel across the Atlantic over to that wild and savage place, the colonies, <laughs> was what we were in those days, the 1730s. The colonies that later became the United States of America. He says, there's wild people over there, both the settlers and the natives, and there are a bunch of savages over there. I'm going to go over and get them to God. <laughs> so he came over. He went to what is now Georgia and attempted ministering among the Indian people there. And the ministry was a total failure because Wesley didn't know in his heart what he was talking about with his mouth and his head. And it's interesting, on the journey back on the ship, and boy, I've, I've made that journey across the Atlantic so many times myself. Now, I am so glad for jet airplanes. Oh, thank you, Jesus. But in those days, there were none. They had to go on ships, and it took weeks. And there were storms. <laughs> and on Wesley's trip, there was a storm. And among his fellow passengers was a group of Moravians that had also been over to America on a mission trip, and now they were coming back to head back to Moravia there where they were headquartered. And this terrible storm broke out, and the ship was being tossed just like a little piece of wood. Everybody thought they were going to die. Wesley himself, he writes this in his journal, he himself was scared to death. And as one of the waves, the ship went down and came back up again, he looked across the deck and he saw this group of Moravians huddled together in a corner. They weren't freaking out. They, weren't, they didn't appear to be terrified. They were praying and calling on the name of the God they knew in their hearts the Lord God of heaven and earth. 
And after a little while, that storm calmed down, and the whole ship and all the passengers made it back to London. Hallelujah. But that event made an impression on Wesley. And about a year, a year and a half later, he was just going about his business one day, and another Moravian showed up, Peter Bowler. Think about this, a guy who none of you have ever heard of. You've all heard of John Wesley, but nobody's ever heard of Peter Bowler. Peter Bowler was a Moravian, and he ventured off of the plantation there at, at Moravia and was evangelizing across Europe, and he landed in London, and he ran into Wesley. He brought him a very simple gospel challenge. Do you really know this Jesus of the Bible? This Jesus of the Holy Spirit, this Jesus who can be real to your heart. And Wesley had to confess he didn't know him that way. He had great intellectual knowledge. He's, he's one of the great intellects in the, in the history of the church. But intellect is not going to get you to Jesus by itself. Can you say amen to that today? And that's the point at which Wesley writes in his journal, my heart was strangely warmed within me. And most historians believe it was through that and what immediately followed that Wesley himself actually became born again. Hallelujah. Finally, after all the education and even a mission trip over to the foreign land of America and his life being spared by the prayers of the Moravians. Now he's back and he gets saved. Hallelujah. But here's something. If you're ever, if you're ever in a Methodist church somewhere, tell them about this, okay? Because <laughs> most of them forgot. <clears throat> in the passing of 1739 to 1740, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, and 60 other people held a prayer meeting, kind of a watch night type of thing, to usher out the old year and usher in the new year of 1740. And they really went after it. I mean, they prayed and sought God. And the record, the historical record of it says this. Somewhere around 3 in the morning... Something broke out among all those present. They began speaking with strange sounds, quote-unquote. <laughs> Which, how else would you describe tongues if you had no clue what tongues was, you know? Because nobody had, in their, in their experience, had done it. So kind of, when you're in the Methodist church and you speak quietly, very, very quietly, tell them, tell them about that with uh, John Wesley, <laughs> their founder and his brother and his, his greatest partner, George Whitfield. Why were those men so able to bring revival and ultimately reformation to Europe and America? except they were filled with the Holy Spirit to overflowing and, and spoke in other tongues, but then began manifesting all these gifts of the Holy Spirit that we love so much. The part of Wesley's ministry that really became a reformation, it may kind of surprise you because of how much 
we take it for granted now. And it's kind of like Luther, right? I mean, now we come to a meeting like, and rightfully so. I'm not saying, you know, every minute of every meeting we say, hey, the just shall live by faith. It's, it's a foundation that we assume, and it's there. We got a two-year-old Angela pulls up at the house, brings the pizza up the steps. Our lady opens the door, takes the pizza, gives her the money, and she says, did your manager say anything to you about prayer? Angela bursts into tears. She's a, she's a prodigal fleeing from God, but God has now arrested her, and this lady she's never seen in her life that says, what about prayer? And she bursts into tears, and Our Lady grabs her in her arms like a mother and starts putting the love into her and the glory of God, and a prodigal comes home to Jesus delivering a pizza. <laughs> Hallelujah! I like it. Do you like it? I like it. It's the saints being equipped and doing the work of the ministry. She didn't stand there at the door of her house with Angela weeping there and saying, oh, I don't have Dr. Nichols' cell phone number. I can't call him. You know? You know? That wasn't necessary. She was ready. She was equipped. Hallelujah. And so are you. That's the good news. Get ready, saints. The reason you come to a conference like this is to get equipped and then not just sit around with a bunch of you. Oh, I'm equipped. You know, I'm sitting in my chair here. Bless God. Look how equipped I am, man. I got weapons on this arm. <laughs> I got swords over here, shields. Look at my legs. Wow. <laughs> Get up and walk out and just engage life with the love and power of Jesus, and people will begin coming to you. Hallelujah. And you'll be coming to them. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, uh, next slide, please. Everyone scream right out loud. What does this look like, doctor? What does this look like, doctor? Here it is. Apostolic Reformation. This picture right here is one of my favorite pictures. This was taken in a village in Tanzania called Bwanga. The kingdom came. Remember, you remember, take your paper with you. That, oh, Craig, we got to get you one of those. You gave him one? Okay. All right. Take your paper with you and study it when you get home. The kingdom came. Tabwanga. Now, what this picture shows is it doesn't show the third one. There's three of these Muslim men. Uh, you see the first guy here, it's right up close, and then his buddy there with the white uh, cap on, and there's a third one over that the camera angle couldn't get. These are Muslim men in their 70s. These men are the key to the Muslim population of this village. Streamed out behind each of these guys are his wives, his children, his grandchildren, coming as a clan because he said to do it. And that's how it works in that community. And this guy right in the front here, I'll never forget him. As he was coming, this we had just given an altar call. We had just told what you have to do to receive Jesus 
and, and what it means to repent. And that that's what we're going to do. If you want that, come. While he's walking, getting closer to us, I could hear him saying this phrase in Swahili over and over and over. And I turned to one of our boys and I said, what is this man saying? And he listened and he said, he, sir, he's saying, I want this Jesus. I want this Jesus. I want this Jesus. A guy that we would think is way out of bounds. And we got not one of them that night. We got three with their whole clans behind. Generations of people are going to go to heaven and not hell. Hallelujah. But another thing happened in Bonga. We've had this happen a few places. I mean, we've ministered in many, many places in Africa and India. But what happened there was amazing. To start with, the night before this, a woman got up and testified. And I have the video of this. She said, I was going to fetch water. And I tripped over something, and I fell down and broke my leg. Well, we would say, well, dear, you should go to the clinic and get it set. There is no clinic, okay, in Bwanga. There's no medical infrastructure there at all. And this is what she said in the testimony. She said, I laid in bed for two weeks. I could not stand because of that pain. I, the leg was broke. It was a compound fracture. I could not stand because of that pain. She said, a group of my friends brought me here and laid me on the grass of the field. And when the healing pronouncement came, Jesus came and put my leg back together. And I questioned her a little bit while she was giving the testimony. Yes, it was completely broken. Yes, I could not stand on it. She said, you want to see me jump? I said, very much. <laughs> and she jumped up and down like a pogo stick on the formerly broken leg. Now, these guys all saw that and heard that. They don't get that at the mosque. The imam can't do that. But Jesus can. And they came to Jesus. Another thing that happened at Bwanga. We had 16 churches working with us. We had Lutherans, we had Methodists, we had Baptists, we had Church of Christ, we had Pentecostals and Charismatics. It was amazing. And there was a supernatural grace to conserve the harvest that came each night as these people came up and prayed to receive Jesus. And we got an email about a month later that documented the the, uh, the leader of the pastors uh, for this effort was actually a Baptist pastor. 
And he said, the Sunday following the crusade, I had 300 new people in my church, and they're staying with us, and we're discipling them and training them. And he said, I want you to know that every one of my fellow pastors, the 15 other pastors, each of them had dozens and dozens of new people in their churches the Sunday after, and they're staying with them. And I'm praising God that their churches are growing. That's what the Baptist pastor said. Then at the bottom of the email, he said this, because of this unity among the pastors, the young people... Christians in our village are joining themselves together. We, we didn't lead them into this other than to just train them in the word and the spirit, but not to this specific activity. They came to their pastors and they said, can we go out in groups and knock on doors and ask people if they have someone that needs to be healed? <laughs> and the pastor said, yeah, actually. And they started doing that, and more people got saved in those weeks and months that followed with those kids doing that. I'm talking kids and teenagers doing that in Bwanga, then got saved in the crusade, and thousands got saved in the crusade. They'd roll up at a house and knock on the door. Hey, you got anybody sick here? And somebody says, yeah, Grandma's back in the back room here with a terrible case of typhoid. We don't know if she's going to make it. Could we pray for her? Sure, come on in. They're just kids, right? They lay their hands on grandma and the power of God hits her. She stands up. She's got strength, feeds them. Kids like that, you know, all kinds of great African food. And they just went from house to hut to house all through the village and out in the neighboring areas. I like it. The kingdom comes. Denominational divisions didn't keep these pastors apart from each other. Hallelujah. All right, one more slide here. Look at your neighbor and tell them we're almost done. Go ahead and tell them. All right. Oh, boy. Here we go. I'm going to give you three things here that need to be reformed in the apostolic reformation. I gave you the one big one, okay, that this one, I think, this is just my opinion, I think this compares with Luther's, the just shall live by faith, and Wesley's preaching on the fields. That is, that the apostolic reformation raises up the saints and sends them out to do the work of the ministry. But specific, uh, you might say, doctrinal things, that need to be reformed. Let's go over these quickly. Cessationism, both formal and functional. The main foundation verse for this erroneous teaching is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I really saw this clearly a couple years ago, uh, dealing with a precious Jehovah's Witness elder and his son in my living room. It really came home to me. Um, cessationism is the teaching that Peter, James, and John, and Paul, and the apostles of the New Testament, they had the power of God. Jesus gave it to them. They went into their world, and they did all the things that you read in the book of Acts. And then it all ceased as far as supernatural. 
as far as healings, miracles, prophecies, all that kind of stuff. And now we are to just preach the gospel as the gospel of salvation. Don't do anything with this other stuff. That's cessationism. People who have that in their, in their doctrinal statements, I would call formal cessationists. It's a part of their doctrinal structure. And we're all familiar with that and how it works. There's another whole group of cessationists that I call functional cessationists. They are in denominations, fellowship groups, networks, whose doctrinal statements talk about speaking in tongues and prophesying and healing the sick and everything, but they, they don't expect they'll ever do it. So the practical effect, let's talk about practical effects, because we say, oh, wow, those formal cessation is bad, bad, bad. Well, as far as the outcome, it's really no different. If we have this in our head, if we have it on our paper, and we never do it. So I would say, be a person who encourages, because I know no one here in this room today, not one of you, I believe, is a functional cessationist, but you know people who are. Okay. Encourage them and bring them out. Drag them over the line and tell them we're living in a time of reformation. The saints are being loosed on the world by the Holy One, hallelujah, who wants them to know, wants the world to know about Jesus, who wants the world to see him and how great he is. So, here's the scripture. Let's just read these three verses. Here's the verses they use. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, the last thing here, the content of the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven composed of? I, I believe this is part of the apostolic reformation. And Jesus shifted it so radically that some people just were, they were thrown completely out of gear and they're just spinning in neutral. Okay, God. Jesus, you can't do this. Jesus said, watch me. In Matthew 4, 17, here is Jesus beginning his ministry. How something begins and how it ends is very important, Right? like a book, the introduction and the last pages of the last chapter. That's what, those are what I usually read. And then I see if I, if I want to read the whole book, you know, little tip for you, you know, did you read that book? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom. Can I translate it literally from you, for you from the Greek? The kingdom of the heavens is at hand. It's plural every time that phrase is used in the Gospel of Matthew, only in that book of the Bible. Isn't that interesting? 
Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. So the first thing that we have to understand that is contained in the kingdom of heaven is repentance. Then we have this amazing story of how Jesus calls the disciples, I'm going to resist that temptation, and I'm going to go to verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. There's some more content for the kingdom of the heavens, the kingdom of heaven. The healing of all kinds of sickness and disease. Then in verse 24, we have more. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people. That's a lot of sick people. Brought them all. There's that word, all. Who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demonized, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them I put in parentheses there, all, because in Luke 4.40 it actually says that. He healed every one of them. Now we got content for the kingdom of the heavens. And, and the disciples are listening, and, and the Jewish nation is listening to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, the, the kingdom of the heavens is David's son coming here and kicking these Romans in their... <clears throat> But, okay, and getting them out of here, don't you understand? Jesus says, no, the king, another place for the kingdom. Jesus just keeps on teaching and practicing. He's not discouraged, amen? 7 and 8 in Matthew chapter 10, he sends the 12 out. As you go, preach, saying. So the kingdom of the heavens is preaching. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right in front of you where you can see it. It's not some distant, far-off thing that may come someday. It's right here. Heal the sick. Understood subject is you, singular. You, 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 you. Not you, plural, you, singular. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely get more content for the kingdom of the heavens. And the human condition, of course, requires us to fill that out wider and wider and wider every time we do something for Jesus out in the kingdom. Isn't that something? And every one of us can do it. Hallelujah. Let's stand up together, please. I'd like to just close this a little, little different than probably most sessions in a conference like this, where I just want to release upon you the ability to teach this and practice this yourself. To understand it, first of all, which remember, uh, I would say maybe the cutoff is maybe first grade, <laughs> okay? Maybe kindergarten, okay? I mean, this isn't rocket science. Kids are doing this, amen? 
But to understand it and to process it and then to teach it to others, what I did to you here today, I, I am commissioning you to do with others. Is that, is that okay? Everybody put your hand on your heart, please. Hallelujah. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I commission you to be yourself a teacher of righteousness, a person who under, understands the times and the, the epochs and the eras that we are living in, and that stand in the midst of a reformation. I release upon you ability to teach, ability to shepherd, ability to evangelize, ability to proclaim, ability to, to as, assemble the, the saints of God and deploy them out on missions, but especially this teaching. And I release it upon you today to enter your mind and your spirit and your heart within you, that inside yourself you will, from dispensing salvation to people, had become a money-making machine, and uh, all, all the problems and abuses of the Middle Ages that Luther was interested in addressing. But if you boil it down to this one simple thing, you think about this, think about how enormous this really is. The church, capital C, we'll just say the church, had gone so far from what the Word of God teaches that the just shall live by faith was only a memory. It wasn't happening. It wasn't being preached. It wasn't being practiced. No, in fact, few people cared about it anymore. It, the church had become a thing that was heavily involved in economic power and political power. And Luther had to conduct his reformation <laughs> with those forces arrayed against him. And it's why we usually use him as the example and the, uh, the light to show us what a reformer is and what a reformation looks like. The just shall live by faith. Just taking those six words, they are in English, and putting them in the limelight and at the center and then doing what is necessary at any personal cost for that, for that to be returned to the church, I, I don't think most, I, I don't even know if I appreciate the fullness of that. that the, the fact that we could sit here today in this place as Christians, knowing and believing what we do, we, we owe a big part of it to Luther and his, his stand for that. Now, was Luther a perfect man? No. Did Luther dispense perfect doctrine? No. He had some problems, and they've been pointed out. But what Luther did do is he rescued the church from a slide into humanism, is really what it was, of its day, and brought the word of God back to bear on the subject, and the gospel began to be preached again. These 
forces, especially the political, because Europe at that time was, uh, most of it was called the Holy Roman Empire, <laughs> which is a very interesting phrase because it wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't an empire. <laughs> but, but that's what they called it. And Luther lived, of course, in Saxony and Germany. And because, here's the way it worked. There was an emperor, and uh, Charles V, who was living at the time of Luther, and he had to be in a relationship with the popes. He was the emperor of the quote-unquote Christian world. Now, the emperor was put into place by men who were called electors. They were princes that had uh, their authority was in given territories all around Europe. And so this Charles V had been elected by that to be emperor. And he was very opposed to what Luther was doing. So the Pope said to Charles V, ah, this Luther is really causing us a lot of trouble here. Just send the boys out and bring him in, okay? <laughs> and... Um, because Luther was living in Saxony, the elector of Saxony is a man called Frederick the Wise. And Frederick the Wise found out about it, and he said, Well, Martin Luther, I've got a castle here. It's at my disposal, and I'd like to make it available to you to stay there as long as you need to, because there are going to be some guys that are going to come looking for you. And it's not because they want your autograph, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and Frederick the Wise hid Luther in the Wartburg Castle for over two years. So here's the kind of guy Luther was. So here he is. He's in the castle. He can't go out anywhere very much, or there's some somebody will grab him and haul him over to the emperor and the pope. So he says, well, here I am. What should I do? I know. I'll translate the Bible into German, <laughs> the language they were speaking. So he gets him a, a Hebrew scriptures and a, and a New Testament a Greek scriptures, and he, and he creates the German translation of the Bible, which still is the basis for the, the uh, Bible that the German-speaking people read. It's been, you know, like the King James, it's been updated a few times, but it's still the basic one that Luther did. What a guy, huh? Yeah. And so that Reformation kind of set the tone for what Reformations would be like. And uh, we can talk about a second one. I would say to you, through the history of the church, there have been many revivals. There have been a few Reformations. And, uh, and I love revival, and I, I want to see revival come. In fact, I, I believe it, it's here in a manner of speaking. I, I think sometimes we get too futuristic about it. I want to tell you, I, I've preached in Pastor Lloyd's church. Can I tell you, Pastor Lloyd has people in his church that regularly go out and just share the love of Jesus and the power of God in Walmart in the hardware store, in the gas station. And and that, to me, is a sign that revival has conquered human hearts and has, and has raised them up to do what we believers should constantly be doing, 
just being Jesus where we live, where we shop, where we do our business, where, where we go about life. And uh, that in itself is a reformation, but I'm jumping ahead of the story here now, okay? This second reformation I want to talk about here happened with John Wesley. John Wesley, as you know, was a, an unconverted, very highly trained, uh, and be a unified reality centered on Jesus, full of his love full of the knowledge of God, and that Jesus has fulfilled his word. I will come, and my Father will come, and we will make our home with you. Hallelujah. Now say this right out loud. Say, in the name of Jesus, I receive this commission, and I speak to my own heart right now. Obey the gospel of the kingdom. Rise up and train others. And take this love and this power to those who do not know me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We trust this message has been a blessing to your spiritual life. You can contact us with any correspondence or donations for the support of this ministry at Heart of the Father Ministries, P.O. Box 300, Rush City, Minnesota, 55069. Or visit us online at heartofthefather.net, where you can purchase all of our products or donate online as well. Kingdom blessings on you.